difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here again with... Keith Phipps. Scott Tobias. Genevieve is off at a memorial service for a certain movie dachshund that got kicked with the power of a punch, but she should be back on an upcoming episode. Last week, we broke the rules and talked about Fight Club, David Fincher's adaptation of Chuck Palahniuk's scabrous novel about a suffering everyman who becomes a sort of modern folk hero. Kind of. The things that Fight Club was exploring back in 1999, the lost feeling of a generation of men who didn't feel like they'd been raised to be janitors and insurance adjusters and airplane cleaners, all gets brought up again in Riley Stern's new movie, The Art of Self-Defense, a dark comedy about a nervous, weak young man named Casey, played by Jesse Eisenberg, who has a personal crisis when he's attacked on the street. Looking to reclaim his manhood, he enrolls at a martial arts school run by a man known only as Sensei, played by Alessandro Nivola. Sensei quickly decides Casey is his ideal student, and he brings him in on a secret underground scene of fighters who engage in their own version of the kind of transgressive tactics that Tyler Durden plays with in Fight Club. Both of these films are ultimately about the catharsis of violence and about what it means to be a man in the modern world, and about how easy it is to fall for a charismatic leader who claims to have all the answers. They're both about the appeals of conformity and the horrors and dangers of it. The Art of Self-Defense isn't as stylish as Fight Club, but it's a similarly hard-to-market film that's much funnier, darker, and weirder than it originally looks. And while it doesn't mimic Fight Club's famous twist, it does rely on some twists of its own to tell the story. We'll be back in a minute to talk about how these two films totally fight with each other. Or maybe get along with each other like brothers. We'll see. taking my first class today. Your new white belt? Is that the first belt color? White is before color. You haven't earned color yet. Today's lesson, to kick with your fists and punch with your feet. That makes perfect sense. Good. There's a mental component as well. Everything should be as masculine as possible. We may want to start on those reports. That pile is getting awfully high. I won't be petting you anymore. This is for your own good. What's your favorite style of music? Adult contemporary? No. Should be metal. You're a blade and I'm sharpening you. I see a little of myself in you. Is that you, Sensei? Why are you filming this? This isn't a safe place, Casey. confused about what's happening. You have to trust me. You should have never started taking karate. You can't be weak anymore. I'm interested in buying a gun. I need something that can fit into my hand. Sounds like you're after a handgun. So what did you guys think of the art of self-defense? I, I really liked it a lot. It, it, it takes a little while to get on its wavelength. I think you have to figure out what kind of movie you're watching and what it's trying to say. And even then, it's, it's, it's a pretty slippery piece of filmmaking. But I appreciate it kind of. I also thought 
well, I, we'll get into it with, with when we do the compare the two, but the sort of the gray nondescript approach to the filmmaking was very fitting to what it was trying to accomplish as well. How about you, Scott? Uh, I enjoyed it as well. And, and also, and I think that's exactly right about trying to figure out how to get it on its wavelength because it is a, uh, it's an offbeat film. I think it's probably best approached or understood as a, as a black comedy, though it gets quite serious and disturbing at times. But I laughed a lot during the film, and and uh, and I find myself constantly surprised and off guard by it. Like if I were in a ring with this movie, I'd be, you know, very <laughs> punchy and dazed, and not 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 in very good shape uh, to combat it because it's a it's a it's an odd one. But it's also perfectly performed by uh, Eisenberg, who's really ideally cast, and uh, uh, Alessandro Nivola is uh, just such a darkly charismatic lead or excuse me a villain and uh you know i really enjoy image of boots as well i think she i've always really liked her and i think she's really well used in this movie so no i had a a good time what about you tasha i mean i saw it at south by southwest and i i went a little reluctantly because the description it just sounded so indie movie and there weren't trailers for it back then and jesse eisenberg is one of those actors who I really, really like him in certain things, but there's a, a kind of a sameness to him. Mm-hmm. Like it, when he did the social network, like that was a little bit of a revelation for me because that was him doing a kind of like hard edged bullet speaking, uh, glowering, like no nonsense kind of character that I hadn't seen him do before. He's done so many roles like this, uh, where he's kind of the the nebbishy, stammering, awkward everyman. Uh, and I, much like with Michael Sarah, I just kind of get to a point of like, all right, I've, I've seen this. So the first, I don't know, 10, 20 minutes of the film or so, I was like, all right, I know. I know how this story goes. I know where we're going from here. And then it was just like the film lulled me into quiescence so it could drop me off a cliff. And I, I had that same experience yeah. of like finding myself just like bark laughing, that kind of yeah. like shock laugh that comes from, I, I can't believe where this movie is going. Yeah, It kept surprising me like right up to the end. Um, and even in cases where I was really quite sure that I knew what was coming and I was right, the execution was just, the timing was just so perfect. Uh, I just, I ended up really digging how tight the film is, like how how well it sets up its ideas, how well it explores its themes, but also just like how straight-faced outrageous it is at times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yet in a world that's utterly familiar in, the, in an office space is quite generic. And just the storefront for this karate place, I mean, you've seen that a million times. Mm. It's just like, oh boy, here's a pretty, <laughs> pretty crappy strip mall karate place it reminded me of the foot fist way uh, which is which is another one another kind of karate theme movie where things go a little bit haywire uh though maybe even not as dark as this movie uh gets but um um to, i just wanted to, to the, the i would not say when we were talking about eisenberg earlier one thing i to me you know eisenberg is always that hyperverbal guy, like you know. I mean, that, that that was Roger Dodger was kind of the breakthrough movie for him, and that was that's kind of what I associate with Eisenberg. And so he carries that over to Social Network. But here, there is the sociopathy remains, but the confidence uh, and and uh, articulateness completely abandons him in this character. And I think, but again, very well cast in in this role. 
Yeah, he's terrific. And and, and you know what I, this got me thinking about though? It got me thinking about like about Chris Ware comics. The sort of like, you know, nondescript generic apartment office job, um, sort of this, this spiritness of, of an, and black comedy of, of something like, uh, of, of, uh, one of his, his comics too. Uh, it obviously goes to different places from that, but, but, and I think these sort of like intentional ambiguity about when this is set, this could be set in current day and maybe just no one has a cell phone and, or it could be set. Oh, it's the reason as long ago as the eighties, I would think it's, it's kind of, um, mm. and, and there you're never really, you're a little un, unstuck in time. And I, and I but yeah, I, I think you really do have to get on the, the really dry, dark humor of this because it is, it is, it is dark, but it also is sneaky. It's just kind of like, it's, it's subtle in, in, in a lot of ways as well. Which is funny because Fight Club is an extremely unsubtle movie and you can see the bones of Fight Club pretty clearly in this. We'll mm-hmm. get into like category by category breakdowns uh, in a minute, but just in terms of there being like this this mentor figure who has all of the answers, who's charismatic and has a following and wants to break you down so he can build you back up and the the answer is through fighting, like it all the, and and then you know it it turns out that he's like leading these missions these secret missions of mayhem that uh, are kind of you know I I don't want to give away too much that are kind of uh, upending the city in some ways um, there's just so much of it that seems familiar and yet it's such a different story and told in such a different way yeah what sensei has that that Casey Eisenberg's character doesn't have is this complete confidence that he has answers and, and a, a fully realized philosophy and view of how the world works that is messed up, but he believes in it and can sway people to his way of, of seeing it as well. And it has a centering effect on Casey as well. I mean, it, there's a there's a really fun detail in the movie where Casey really starts to get into karate and he's got a yellow belt and it's just, it's kind of awkward and not really feasible for him to wear his yellow belt outside of the dojo and so he goes in he goes and gets <laughs> different gets belts made and he has to in order to get get a yellow belt made he has to get several other belts manufactured so he gets them all in different colors to give out to people of different ranks among them and it's just and the idea being you're going to carry that identity with you um, through your everyday life, and you're going to have a belt, which is which is such a sign of, of of security. You know, I mean, hold your pants up. You know, what could be more secure than that? Uh, and so, so you have that kind of like comforting you, you know, grip gripping you is this this knowledge that you are this yellow belt and that you belong to something. That whole sequence where he presents those belts to Sensei, it's just. It's so emblematic of what this film is doing because it's such an absurdist thing. It's it's on the face of it. It's just ridiculous. And on some level, having been primed to see kind of how Sensei sees the world, you're you're kind of set up for him to reject this gesture as uh, you know an unworthy or possibly overreaching because the idea didn't come from him or like any number of other things. And the completely straight-faced way that he takes it, and then the way that sequence just builds out with the two of them talking very seriously about these ridiculous garish belts. Uh, It's just, it's how the movie works in microcosm. The humor of this, it actually reminds me a little bit of Taika Waititi, uh, because there's, it's so 
patently ridiculous so much of the time, but everybody takes it with the utmost gravity Mm -hmm. as they're saying, you know, ridiculous things. And the gravity of it makes the ridiculousness work. Because if they played it for comedy, if this was a broad comedy, it would be so dumb. And instead, it's, it's a movie about gravity. It's a movie about people discovering their own personal gravity. Yeah, and I think there's a, um, it's just so straight-faced about all of it, the absurd things that happen. I mean, just this atmosphere of extreme discipline and, and brutality getting applied to a class full of children <laughs> or his dachshund at home who now has to live a life of, of austerity that ultimately lands this poor dog in the hospital and worse. It's so funny and it's such a, it, it, but also obviously because you're dealing with two extremely vulnerable things, children and dogs. I mean, you really have to be able to stomach just how dark the comedy gets. Did you guys see uh, Riley Stern's previous film? Mm-hmm. Uh, Faults. Faults. Yeah, I did. I, is, there, is there any point of comparison between these uh, movies? Oh, yeah. Have you seen, you haven't seen Faults? I've, no, I've seen Faults. I reviewed it for The Dissolve. Uh, I, I loved it. And yeah. uh, the the Leland Orser performance that that anchors that film. I mean, it's a, a kind of a two-hander between him and Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who's just spectacular all the time. Um, but Leland Orser was a, more of a an unknown figure for me. And like watching him in that film, I was so blown away. But I remember that as a very like quiet, serious, intense film. I don't remember this kind of like like crazy subversive humor at all. No, it's I think it's a little more anchored to the real world, but I think the same sort themes of like are the same. Though. The power struggle between two people and diff, you know the idea of both you know it, it, those who haven't seen it and you should check it out. But uh, Leland Norster plays a uh, cult deprogrammer, and Mary Elizabeth Winstead uh, plays a woman he's trying to deprogram. But it it becomes sort of this. Um, you know, they keep trading places as to who's actually controlling the relationship in some really interesting ways. Yeah, yeah. it feels like a a very small, very well scripted play. Yeah, it's it's definitely got that feeling of uh, you know, mostly limited to a single set into this very intense confrontation conversation between two people and how the the dynamics of power shift. And also, just they're both films about cults too. About you know that this dojo is a cult in its own way, and faults is about deprogramming someone who's been who's involved in, in a cult and and uh and you know in both of those situations when when you're talking about cults you're talking about characters who are who have, have arrived in this place where they're very where they're vulnerable and looking for answers and you know both films kind of examine what those types of characters are um so uh it's it's fun it's nice to compare it to have the, the i think the two films have a great deal in common and uh i think it's worth really checking out faults it's a it was such a small film it was not you know i mean i'm looking at like wikipedia now and riley stearns isn't even doesn't even have a link doesn't even have his own <laughs> wikipedia page even though he's done i think two pretty significant movies mm-hmm. um uh so uh uh uh, but uh, it's worth worth seeing both just because uh, they, they do have a lot in common and kind of reveal at least uh, this guy's um, thematic obsessions, even if they're quite different in the way they go about expressing them. Let me ask you this. Do you remember a, a distinct point in the movie where you realized it was a comedy? I mean, the, early ga- the gag early on about him, the French couple insulting him and then <laughs> Returning to a car, his car with a with a listening to <laughs> to French uh, and uh, language instruction, which is also the most like sort of the wimpiest, even like with just the wimpiest phrases to to learn. Uh, I mean, that's 
kind of announces early on, but it is very, I mean, it's very dry. And then you got the Repo Man dog food thing too, right? Sure. With it, with he gets the he gets the brandless dog food mm-hmm. <laughs> he brings home. I, mean, I think it's pretty. I th- it was clear to me pretty quickly that uh, that we we're to laugh. Though it took a while for my theater. I actually I saw it in a, th- a small theater, but it had a pretty decent number of people in it, and uh, it took a little while to get rolling. But there was once it got rolling, there, were, there was a lot of laughter. I don't think my crowd was into it. There was two walkouts, and then. Um, as I was leaving, uh, this this pair of older older gentlemen uh, said, "Did you just see that movie?" I'm like, oh, "I am leaving the theater." I'm like, "Yeah." He's like, "Well, did you like it?" I'm like, "Yeah, I did." He's like, "Well, what did you like about it?" I'm like, "I'm I'm like I said it was interesting." And I just kind of walking. It's like, <laughs> oh, uh, you know, you don't you don't get my opinions for free. I'm a professional. <laughs> That's you need to say that. You, you should you, <laughs> you should say, give you him your business right card. Up. Sure. <laughs> uh, tell them that you bill by the by the hour, yeah. or that they could support your Patreon, and That's then they true. could ask you all the questions they want. Yeah, exactly. Uh, for me, I feel like it didn't. The penny didn't exactly drop until uh, we we go into the dojo, and I was just like reading the sign <laughs> with the rules. Yeah. Uh, which I believe includes guns are for the weak. That's number rule number eleven. It's, it's tacked, just sort of tacked on. on. Yep. Uh, the visual of that, like both the the again the straight faced absurdity and like the clarity of it just being stuck onto the end there. I was like, oh, oh, this movie is straight up playing around. Mm-hmm. Like this movie is clowning in a way that I did not realize. Um, and it was, I don't know, it was a very happy moment for me. Well, there's a, honestly a lot more to talk about with uh, Art of Self-Defense, but we want to bring in Fight Club and look at how the two compare. So we'll be right back after this break to break down the connections between these movies. So at this point in your karate training, you are learning how to form words with your fists and with your feet. You're going to get to the point where you don't even have to think about it. Ask me a question. What are your plans for the weekend? I'm going to do some grocery shopping and rent a film, perhaps a comedy, to watch in the comfort of my own home. Now it's time for Connections, when we bring two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. I really want to start this one off by talking about uh, the mentor figures in in both of these films. Um, you you started to talk about this a bit, Keith, about how uh, Sensei has all the answers. He's like very comfortable in his own skin. Mm-hmm. But if you look at him compared to Tyler Durden, Tyler Durden really kind of starts with a neg, you know, that how's that working out for you business. And he, (laughs) he just, you know, he keeps, he knows how to play Jack like a fiddle. He keeps making him insecure and jealous. He keeps changing up the story. He keeps like moving around what he's doing. Sensei is just like this completely straight line. He's, uh, you know, he's unchanging, he's unaltering and he's, predictable in some ways but then he comes out with gems like you know what kind of music do you listen to no you need to listen to metal (laughs) (laughs) and it's not it's not specific metal it's not a specific performer it's just real men listen to metal (laughs) 
and he doesn't come across as nearly as uh as like sexual or charismatic or dangerous or weird or unpredictable as Tyler Durden uh but you can sort of see where that appeal is in him just because he's so absolutely certain you have problems solution metal yeah or or just be in this in being in the dojo and following what I tell you to do. And and also I think just that brutality is so empowering for a character who's lost all s- sense of himself as a man. Uh, I mean, he's out, t- you know, he's broken down, he's been mugged um, and he feels like he needs some kind of way to uh, stand up for himself. And uh gun is not making him <laughs> comfortable. That was a very funny scene. <laughs> gun that will fit into my for, hand. Um, I think you're looking for a handgun. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, so that's great stuff. But I mean, you know, I mean, for the first thing that we should say is that the mentor in this case is not a part of Casey like he is in in Fight Club, where he's literally the same guy. There's a contrast. They're not they're not two parts of each other. It's uh, he's he's someone different and different kind of threat um, to his well being. But um, both have confidence. Both are saying to our weakened heroes that I will give you strength. I know the way forward here. You're lost, but I, I know with absolute certainty what needs to be done and what's going to make you feel um, like a man. And so these characters follow along. I feel like almost more important than the the genre difference between the films, at least as far as the two mentors are concerned. I feel like Sensei comes across as much more of a father figure. I mean, he's he's a teacher figure, obviously, but I feel like he comes across as more of a father figure and Brad Pitt's more of a like the cool older brother uh, that gets you into the kinks on vinyl because like you're too young to know about any of that stuff like he's he's the one with the cool music taste that uh like when he has time for you uh will teach you some some cool stuff that feels like all exciting because he's a teenager and you aren't yet like it's kind of that vibe that dynamic between them but there is i mean not to get i mean i guess we're kind of already in spoiler territory but there is sort of the sense of the identity of the the teacher flowing into the student both between casey and sensei and also uh between the 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 master uh the who preceded um sensei whose picture's up on the wall um <laughs> yeah. who um it turns out they have some more similar stories than you might expect to uh, at the beginning of the film as well um and it, it sort of leaves i feel like casey at the end of this film is in very similar places as the narrator at the uh, uh, the protagonist of, of fight club at the end of that one yeah i mean both films ultimately have to be about uh them rejecting these mentor figures and you know in that sense given that these films are both kind of obsessed with what it means to be a man both of them end up being about somebody who has to reject their mentor figure in order to to become a man while also taking some on some of the qualities when uh, after they reject them after in and in cases, the process yes well they i mean they both have to get the spine to reject their mentor from their mentor right. which is a fun dynamic yeah true uh, what do you guys want to bring in for uh, connections? I think toxic masculinity is a pretty good theme uh, as a con- because I mean, listen, these it's it's not like, Riley Stearns has seen Fight Club. <laughs> Art of, Se- of self defense is very much it feels like a critique or a companion or so- something to Fight Club, and the conclu- and I think there's a point at which it becomes a sharp and deliberate contrast. I think, in the, and that is in the character of uh, played by. Imogen Poots and in the way she has to assert herself and her way of thinking into this 
into this environment in which she's completely repressed and, and dominated. I mean, she, uh, you know, in the film, she is, she is the most talented, uh, the most uh, uh, in terms of uh, karate abilities of any of senseis students she should be a black belt she she utterly humiliates and, and destroys a person that gets gets a black belt i mean so she has that ability but she also has a different way of going about using that power when she gets it i guess or when she when she goes after it um she has a different idea of how those powers should be channeled um and so um having a character like that having a woman uh, who has this kind of power and who can kind of um who, and who wants to upend um this entire way of thinking to her own ends is a pretty important element of this movie in kind of a sharp contrast with fight club yeah the art of self-defense also like overtly turns to say to talk about how he doesn't respect women how he has no interest in uh like a woman achieving this rank and, and she never will he talks very generally about women in general as just you know the the weaker half of the equation the unworthy half of the equation for him masculinity is about rejecting it like anything remotely female including women just as a class and that's something we see just a little bit of uh, in Brad Pitt in Fight Club, you know, talking again about the feminization of society and about men being raised by women and how marriage isn't the answer because it's just bringing another woman into your life. But it feels a little more subsumed in Fight Club, um, maybe because there's uh, like the female character is a little more central and you get a little more of her point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the th- I was talking about how fair uh, Fincher plays with the audience in terms of all of the teases about the big twist at the end of Fight Club. And one of the big ones is just like how Marla consistently responds to to Jack and his behavior. Like it, it's just very clear from the beginning, once you've seen it, you're seeing it for the second time, that just at every turn she's like, you're Tyler, basically. Like why, why are you asking me this question that makes no sense <laughs> whatsoever? There's never a point with her where it's in doubt. So you have these two like very different uh, women, one of whom is like completely outside of everything going on in Fight Club and baffled by it, and one who's right in the middle of art of self-defense. But both of them have to be kind of performatively rejected uh, by by the men, like in order to prove that they're men. Oh no, she gets her own changing room? That seems kind of, that's a nice gesture. (laughs) Let me ask you this question though. Does it seem, what's holding her there to begin with, why does she remain in the role that she's in in this dojo when not only is she reduced to sec- a second class, you know, citizen who can't, who will never, who's never going to be a full black belt, um, but she also is forced to embrace a way of using this power that we discover that she's also not about. I mean, there's a certain compassion to her that is utterly absent from sensei utterly absent from this dojo so what, what is it that is actually keeping her there to begin with a desire to prove herself i mean i it's a really easy trap to fall into the desire to please somebody who cannot be pleased mm. i've fallen into it on social media i've gotten sea lion and i've fallen for it because uh, there's always that Wait, feeling what's sea lion oh my gosh uh, if you just look up sea lioning okay. uh, online it's a it's a complicated thing but basically the very sincere person uh, who keeps wanting to interrupt your discussion to have you explain to them like why for instance you believe that uh, feminism is not a cancer when it clearly Uh. is see if you would just rationally debate me 
we we could get to like uh, some sort of agreement on the question of feminism being a cancer. So if you could just okay. explain everything about your position, you know, it, they, they, it. they eat up time kind of pointlessly. Okay. But it's it's so easy when somebody seems rational to fall into that trap of wanting wanting to have the rational conversation and wanting to please them. I feel like Anna, uh, Imogen Poot's character, has has come to a place of like she's come this far. She honestly believes that if she just tries hard enough, she can win him over. If she just mm. continues, if she just endures, if she just shows how strong she is. Uh, she will win this fight. And she doesn't know that she's already lost it. She doesn't know that he's he's already rejected her and he's not even fighting the fight that she's fighting. Yeah, uh, that's an interesting point. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. But it, I mean, do you feel like the film is putting itself in, into dialogue with Fight Club in that sense? That it's it's both a film that owes its existence to to Fight Club in a way that it, that you can't really, uh, I mean, it was pretty obvious what we were pairing it with, um, but that goes back to that that saying where you if you want to, the best way to kind of critique a movie is to make a movie. Is yeah, that I that mean, kind of movie? It's, it's such a it, the fact that there is a, such a strong, well, I don't want to say a strong female character, but there, but the, that she's so central to the action while also being cordoned off um it's such a commentary on the philosophy behind this and and whereas i feel like in fight club she's she's serves a purpose and she but she doesn't actually push the action along in any way and, and i think that's uh there's a difference but let's, let's talk about violence guys it's it's i think it's a it's a, hmm. a topic we could we could violence. it applies to both of these films in, in various ways but but it is the superficial initial answer in both of these films is that learning to express yourself via violence as a way of self-control will help set you apart and will help you you know calm the storm of 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 your discontent of with modern life and it works in both films it works for a while and then it doesn't in part in part because you find the philosophy underlying the uh, harnessing of violence is a lot more insidious in both both films, I, maybe we talk about how it's different. Like how is how is Sensei's in game different from from Tyler Durden's? Tyler Durden's message is such an anti consumerist message. Like it's he's so much about like tearing down any aspect of of capitalist society because it it wussifies people basically. And Sensei is ultimately out to make money. Like he has this philosophy. But what he's doing is, in part, an attempt to drive more business to his dojo. Yeah. And, and ultimately, like, he is very, very motivated by money in addition to, like, any philosophy or idealism he's uh, bringing around. And I think that's a huge difference between them. Yeah, I mean, he's a grifter. <laughs> I mean, there's not there's nothing like that on and t- Tyler Durden's part. I mean, that, because Tyler Durden is so much a representation of of, a, of internal struggle. Um, and this is this is a guy who's um, looking to rip people off. Um, though it's interesting that he ultimately brings Casey into that particular. I mean, not only into the, these night classes, which are very Fight Club esque, but also into the books. You know, and into and into some of the uh, uh, scams that he's he's running. So there's a confidence on his part that um, Casey's not going to betray him and is going to be entirely on board with uh, the scam that he's running. There's also a sense with Fight Club, like the stakes just keep getting bigger. The violence just keeps escalating. 
the the scale on which Tyler Durden is doing things just keeps getting bigger and bigger. In Art of Self-Defense, it really, really isn't. It's a really penny anti-organization. And the more <laughs> you find out about Sensei, the more you kind of like think, well, this this guy isn't terribly competent like he's not great at balancing his own books at running his own business at keeping his own desk clean i mean he's still running a crappy strip mall dojo that just happens to have this horrible edge to it but it's still yeah he's a very small-minded guy doesn't have any vision at all Uh, but but he's he does have a very small cult that he's assembled at pretty much the same way tyler durden did so I, i feel on some level it's it's funny that they're both using violence to convince people to join up but then their goals in the end one of them is like i'm going to make an army and tear down society and the other one is like maybe maybe another location in another strip mall somewhere (laughs) down the line yeah yeah i also think uh just the scale of the violence on like the the violence in fight club is pretty sexualized and it's pretty shocking there's a lot of blood there's a lot of just like very visceral like knuckles on flesh kind of action the and s- the sound design is pretty is oof. pretty key to that as well yeah for sure and uh yeah art of self defense there's some there's some surprising violence but it isn't all that graphic or uh, are shocking in the I same kind of way. His arm broken though. Yeah, there's that's I think pretty the, rough. I think the, the stuff that the, the dog, the thing, yeah, oh, poor dog. Mm-hmm. I think the, the the when it hits, it hits pretty pretty hard. I think the the climax is is that's, that's some shocking bit of violence there as well. Yeah, and plus you got you know, Imogen Poots's fists of fury. <laughs> yeah, she she uh, punches with her uh, feet, right? Yeah, that's yeah. Right, and, uh, exactly. Kicks with her uh, hands, arm of hands. Is that how it works? But I mean, is any of that on the scale of like Jack delivering like a, a possibly permanently disfiguring beat down the angel? Yeah, you know, no, just because not. because he's jealous of him. No, no, but it's pretty brutal here. Yeah, and I also think that the scene, the initial mugging, is pretty scary because that's it, true. It is it's staged like something that that could happen to anyone just walking down the street um particularly if there's a small cult of of martial arts enthusiasts who are are, are harassing people habitually (laughs) but uh, yeah yeah i i think one of the other differences between the film and check me on this one um because i'm curious whether you're you see the same thing i feel like fight club does really tap into like like well and accurately tap into kind of a a visceral lizard brain desire for violence and Mm. i don't feel like art of self-defense does that much to make this secret society seem compelling or like like something you'd want to join or make the violence that they engage in seem exciting and thrilling and powerful like even the most subversive and dangerous and violent things they're up to just it doesn't seem like it would be that exciting to be a part of. I think if I if I could punch with my foot though, yeah. that that would be desirable because who wouldn't want who wouldn't want that? Yeah, I mean, and maybe that's a critique of Fight Club itself from coming from this movie is is uh, to try to take that appeal away to make it absolutely definitive that this is not art of self defense is not some brutalist 
philosophy that's being in, in advanced it's that, that it has a point of view that is strongly against this um, sort of activity and that's how you do it you make it you make it look unappealing well the, that kind of brings us back to you scott you talked about how uh fight club maybe isn't isn't quite obvious enough in dismissing its own fascistic ideas here's the version of it that's much more on its face about what it means and how you should feel about it do you like this version better I mean, they're different films. <laughs> I wouldn't say I wouldn't say say that. It is a weird thing for me to to say that Fight Club or any movie needs to be more heavy handed about something. Yeah. I mean, because Fight Club, for goodness sakes, is you know, I mean, it's not a, it, it's deft in certain respects, but it is not uh, light of touch. Um, but um, so no, I don't really, I, I don't. I'm not really saying this is some prescriptive that needs to be applied to art of self-defense. Can we talk just a little about, uh, like, both of these films are, are essentially about just the, the desperation of cubicle life, the desperation of a corporate America and trying to live in it and be a part of it and still consider yourself a human being with a life. Like, both of them are about how violence and being part of something secret gets you out of that feeling of being a like a worthless drone buzzing through through life yeah do you, do you think no, i think we, another another way that it tweaks fight club a little bit is how, is how nice his boss is mm. yeah. so many days off uh and then you know it's okay you have lots of vacation days so you know when 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 your sick days run out we'll just, just start to start using those you know and then he fills in for him <laughs> too for him. Um, um yeah no it's uh he, he seems to have a, a nice boss i i don't think he's unhappy with the film opens i think it's a little bit he, he obviously enters into a break room situation with the cool kids of the mm-hmm. office uh who, who treat him poorly but i think he's fairly content with the with the very modest life that he lives he's um the film doesn't really say anything explicit about him being potential you know on the spectrum spectrum but but i think i think uh he definitely reads that way um he's he's very he's into his routine he's into his numbers he has his little dog and you know what really rattles him is this one incident and that just completely upends his life and transforms his whole way of thinking and has him uh thinking about things he never thought about before like guns like i mean most people kind of know what a handgun is so 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 for him to kind of like walk into a walk into a gun store and look at look at the wall and be like not even know what to ask for he wants a gun that fits in his hand um you know i mean this is a guy who who in the very super narrow parameters of his life is happy and that's definitely not how you would describe edward norton's at the beginning of fight club yeah, I don't think, again, the, the stakes just aren't as high. Like, he's not as miserable. He's not working as hard to compensate. It's not making him as desperate. Uh, but at the same time, there is just that sense of, like, he's he's being bullied like a schoolyard kid at work. And if his boss is nice, it's because his boss is also kind of a wuss. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's just, there's nothing... There's nothing in that environment to kind of like to hook onto, like to to make him feel like he's alive. Uh, violence makes him feel like he's alive, even if it's again like kind of small violence compared to Fight Club violence. Totally. I feel like we need to wrap up just by by talking about the misogyny in in both of these movies. I mean, they're both. This isn't a subtle thing. Like this isn't a <laughs> like let's argue about the meaning of uh, how how women are treated in Mash. This is like as I said earlier, a movie where women have to be performatively rejected by men because it's a both films are about men claiming their identity. But Fight Club still has. 
uh, the specter of sex and like how how do you navigate sex while rejecting women? And when we we see it and it's it's pretty funny. It's kind of horrible, but it's pretty funny with the sort of relationship between Imogen Poot's character and and Jesse Eisenberg's character. There's always that sort of do do is there any possibility for a romantic interest here probably not like mm-hmm. the, there's a queasiness in the relationship between them uh that feels very different and you know sensei's like like big misogynistic statements about like women in their place uh just seem like a sort of a very different part of all that um i am curious what you make about how both of these films like use women as kind of the outsider that needs to be like uh like shot down in order to prove like that you're coming from a, a, the right place of brotherhood well i think a couple of things i think both have both tyler durden and since they have some really clear ideas about what a man is and what a man isn't and wrapped up in that is creating the negative which is basically you know describing everything uh the opposite of everything positive about being a man to to the negative about being a, a woman in this case and and uh i believe it's kind of uh the definition of misogyny isn't it i mean but to the to the larger point there's also i think a lot of fear of women wrapped up in both of these men and instead of emitting any kind of fear which would be weakness they kind of double down and it turns in, in, into uh, disdain and, and hate which is something another way like just to bring full circle we opened this the first episode talking about how uh, prescient uh, Fight Club was about online culture I think you see this this you know this reflecting some some, uh, some the state of online culture even though it's not explicit about online culture where you have all these these sort of misguided rational rationally hateful um, um, misogyny um, that's sort of thought out as part of a larger thought system um, and you kind of see the absurdity of it but it still doesn't make it any less uh, disturbing yeah I hadn't really thought about the rationality aspect of it and just like how much online misogyny in particular is kind of disguised as this well i'm I'm illogical and rational uh therefore mm-hmm. I reject women who, as we all know are uh, emotional and irrational mm-hmm. uh, this is just the only way to go about things and <laughs> how much sensei presents that as a kind of you know evolutionary destiny <laughs> yeah and uh, the, uh, one thing I do like about our self defense though is how anna is in the mix in a way like she's not on the outside she is part of the night group um she's skill wise is uh the top of the heap and is in there proving it and fighting for herself and in her point of view and i it, it was kind of refreshing to have that character here i mean it, you know the films are working in different purposes i don't want to say like a film has to do that. A film has to have a woman be a part of that group because, you know, that in Fight Club, it's not they're shut out for a very important reason, I guess. But uh, but it gives this film its own distinction in vitality, I think. At the same time, like, I like that Marla's such an outsider in Fight Club. I, I think that gives her a perspective that nobody else has. And it becomes really interesting that, you know, Anna is trying so hard to win Sensei's approval. She is determined to climb this ladder, even though it's a very small, unworthy ladder. Yeah. yeah. Uh, whereas Marla's completely on the outside of things. And as a result, like, she's the one person who just kind of sees through a Tyler Durden. Like, she's never, she's never fooled. She never uh, falls for his 
uh, charisma. Like she's there for the sex and for we're told vulnerability that he shows that we never actually see, but she's not part of the collective. Like she doesn't fall into line. She's not part of the cult. She's always willing to like reject him and walk away up, up and up until the point where when they're sitting down together in that diner and he's desperately trying to explain, she's still trying to walk away because she's annoyed with him. You know, we meet her finding out that she's got kind of a similar fetish for catharsis and pain that he does and when he tries to threaten her away or appeal her away she's just totally dismissive of him there's just a feeling that she's got his number from the beginning and the degree to which she's an outsider in the film gives her a real surprising power Uh, for sure no i mean yeah again i don't i don't want to say that as a kind of a qualitative comparison between those two i think i I like the way they're both used for the way you know i think you said it well about uh Helen Bottom Carter and, and, and Fight Club, but um, uh, it's effective here in Art of Defense, Self Defense as well. They're very different different movies. Well, any last thoughts about how these two films stack up with each other? Like if they were getting a fight, who would win? Yeah. Uh, no, I don't have any. Fight, fight Club. Still <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Fight Club would, be, would beat the hell out of Art of Self Defense. Yeah, but it's, but I'm happy for this movie. I'm glad it, it's out there. It's it's uh, it's a lot of a lot of fun and worth seeing. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, I, just from the moment I saw it, I, I had that experience of I can't wait for other people to see this movie so we can talk about it. Totally. Here we are talking about it. Yep. I know we still can't. We're such mavericks. We are so transgressive. We're so good at breaking the rules. <laughs> Fight Club's available on DVD and Blu-ray and online via the usual digital rental sites. The Art of Self-Defense is in art house theaters, including, we hope, one near you. We'll be right back with your next picture show. it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call this Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Keith, what in the film world has been good for you lately? We say lately. It's not a recent film, but I've, I had a little extra time uh, this weekend, so I watched one of my favorite movies, which is whatever random thing I've recorded off Turner Classic Movies several <laughs> several months ago that I'm finally getting around to. Uh, in this case, it was the 1933 uh, drama Babyface starring Barbara Stanwyck. Uh, it is a very much a pre-code um, offering um, and, and apparently one of the films that actually pushed the Hayes Code from being something that was written down to something that was actually enforced uh, the, the, the next, starting the next year. Uh, but Barbara Stanwyck plays the daughter of a speakeasy owner in, in, in Erie, Pennsylvania, who is not happy with her lot in life. Uh, but uh, she has a favorite customer uh, who is a cobbler and, and who comes in and does, doesn't come in as often as he used to because it's like the rough crowd of the speakeasy. But uh, he introduces her to the, the work of Frederick Nietzsche in the concept <laughs> of will to power, um, and which she then applies to her life by going to New York and then using man after man to advance herself in a position in the world. And it is um, an amazing ascent that is actually symbolized in the film by... She works at a, at a, at a bank, it's a multi-story bank, and, and there's a model of it that just kind of, the camera, each time she 
moves on to a new man and thus a new position is is like just moves up a little just a little story higher to show where she is now uh it ends up having a somewhat compromised ending and not not in, in the original cut which was then revised to be even a little more watered down but she does not stay bad forever uh but it is wonderfully uh, enjoyable to sympathize with someone who is you, you can't help even as amoral as she is you can't help but rooting for her because everyone else is around her is, is so much so dumb <laughs> she's you know <laughs> like this exploitation that, that she's committing is is seems totally justified um and uh even if it eventually catches up with her it's 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 uh it's a pleasure to watch and barbara sandwick you know who's better who's better than barbara yeah. sandwick you know it's especially she pretty she pretty r-rated back then <laughs> she's kind of like think... she's, she had a pretty pretty intense uh, a sexuality at that point. Yes, and like, yeah, her her. If I remember correctly, her her background is kind of, you know, in 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 Berlin. You know, she's a Ziegfeld girl, so not not actually burlesque, I guess, but uh, definitely someone who uh, was presented as a sex symbol early on, and then I think learned to play with that persona in some really interesting ways. Uh, yeah, she's she's fantastic, yeah. and this is this is uh, um, sort of uh, both barrels of, of Barbara Stanwyck as as uh, temptress and and, and seductress uh, in this film. So I definitely would recommend. Uh, Babyface. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, it does. Tasha, how about you? Well, I recently uh, did the thing that I haven't done in a long time, which is basically just to spend a day in a theater. Um, I had a, a fairly early screening of something, and then I just stayed there and, and chain-smoked movies for the rest of the day. <laughs> and one of the films I caught in the middle of that, because there are a lot of things in theaters that I, I, I really wanted to see, one of the things I caught in that five-movie <laughs> marathon was uh, Tom Harper's Wild Rose, uh, starring Jesse Buckley as an Irish country singer uh, who really wants to make it to Nashville and uh, become a, a superstar. And she has two little kids who she has let down over and over as she kind of pursues this uh, this goal. She has a following. She has a, a bar where she was a superstar. She has a jail record. She has a lot going on. And it's, it's very reminiscent of a lot of indie films about uh, people struggling to grow up, people trying to figure out like who exactly they're going to be, and particularly uh, young women trying to navigate adulthood. I mean, it has it has things you could say in common with movies like Frances Ha, but uh, it's it's also it has things in common with movies like Crazy Heart. You know, it's about a singer who is very very talented and has every reason to pursue fame, but at the same time, uh, it's just very clear that pursuing fame would come at the cost of like other relationships that are very important and at the cost of like these two children who are dependent on her. There are a lot of different interesting kind of push and pull things going on in this film. I love films with complicated sympathies where you're on somebody's side until the moment that you're not and then maybe you're back with them again and god jesse buckley's performance is just she's so winning and whenever she's off by herself you see her as this very young uh, kid who's very talented and has a bright future ahead and then she's suddenly around her kids, uh, the older of which is just old enough to like know her history and be very judgmental of her, um, and the younger of which is alternately clingy and uh, shy with her. 
And all of a sudden, she's a mother who's not living up to her responsibilities. So it's a movie that really plays with a lot of very familiar fame fantasies. You know, you're rooting for her to get discovered, except you're rooting for her to stay home and take care of her damn kids. And the movie just goes back and forth, back and forth with a lot of different incidents along the way. Beautifully acted, a lot of uh, just incredible musical performances, really well assembled. I highly recommend it. Uh, Wild Rose. It blitzed through theaters, so it's probably already gone from your locale. But uh, the film world being what it is, I would expect it to show up on, uh, you know, VOD or on demand or some streaming service or the other roughly 12 seconds from now. (laughs) Probably so. I I really wanted to see that movie, and uh, I will. At some point, but uh, sounds really good. I am certain that the world will give you an opportunity. Uh, Scott, what's been good for you lately? Well, you, you probably have a pretty good, decent opportunity to see my uh, pick, which is the documentary Mike Wallace is Here. Um, this is a, a documentary about the legendarily feisty 60 Minutes in- interrogator. But it's it, it, it kind of takes the same tough but fair attitude towards his legacy that he might take toward one of his subjects. Um, It appreciates Wallace as somebody who made extraordinarily dynamic television out of nailing people, right? About, about he, he's the guy who's going to ask you the big gotcha questions. He's going to, he's going to be the guy who's not going to let you wriggle off the line. And of course, and that made 60 helped make 60 minutes what it, what it was. But at the same time, He's a guy on TV, um, and this is a film that kind of points out the fact that you know Mike Wallace did not come from a journalistic background. He wanted to be on television. He and he appeared in commercials for uh, you know the Parliament cigarettes and uh, Revlon, and you know and he was just kind of a guy. He was an, inter- an entertainer, and so the film um, talks about how these two instincts do and do not coalesce uh, or suggests i would say the style of the film is very interesting but like it, it, on the on the one hand uh, he he is he has extraordinary instincts as an entertainer and what happens to be entertaining to mike wallace uh what makes it entertaining mike wallace show is the fact that he can make drama out of interviews uh be able to research them well uh be able to to find points of vulnerability and being able to attack and uh and put um his subjects in and make them uncomfortable and make them uh crack a little bit um and um you know at the same time you know he's not you know he's not it, it was hugely damaging to his uh his addiction to tv was damaging to his personal life it led to um the rise of of tv demagoguery like uh bill o'reilly at the beginning of the film um, in an interview with Wallace, talks about how uh, uh, Wallace is the driving force behind his career. Um, so it's a very interesting contrast, a studying contrast that the film ha- handles very subtly and mostly through clips, interview clips, where it's just it's really developing its its themes and developing its take on Mike Wallace by his actual work um, and uh, and through some interviews that he. Uh, gave before he died so um it's pretty good pretty good movie um and uh very exciting um not that long maybe 90 a little over 90 minutes uh and it should be pretty easy to find mike wallace is here and that's it for this edition of the next picture show our next pairing will come out august 13th and 20th keith you want to tell us what's coming up next 
For our next episodes, we'll be heading out west to Los Angeles at the end of the 1960s, a place facing some seismic changes, but not literally. Then we'll be talking about the movie uh, Earthquake. Naturally, we'll be talking about Quentin Tarantino's latest Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, in which Leonardo DiCaprio plays a fading cowboy actor trying to figure out what the next step of his career will be. But first, we'll be discussing Shampoo, Hal Ashby's 1975 film starring Warren Beatty as a womanizing hairstylist facing a crisis on Election Day of 1968. Both films consider how eras end. Both feature a lot of driving through various L.A. neighborhoods, and the connections don't stop there. We hope you'll join us. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Fight Club, the art of self-defense, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave us a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Keith? Oh, I'm freelancing all over the place. Uh, I've written for, uh, lately I've written for Vulture. I've written for a site called The Verge you might have heard of, Tasha. (laughs) Uh, I've written for Polygon. Uh, I've written for TV Guide. I'm kind of all over the place these days. You can find me on Twitter at kphipps3000. And my personal website is keithphipps.com. Scott, uh, how about you? uh, Well, you can find me on Twitter at at Scott underscore Tobias. You can find my work in the New York Times, uh, Washington Post, NPR. Variety, um, uh, The Ringer, Polygon, uh, other other such places. I have a piece up on uh, the uh, the Guardian on the Sixth Senses twentieth uh, anniversary. So I revisit that film, which I did, didn't like when it came out. So that that'll be. It'd be interesting to what well, I th- think of it now because I haven't written the piece yet. But by the time this, <laughs> by the time you read, you will be able to see whether that opinion has been revised or not. Because uh, I ended up liking his, his three follow-up films pretty well, so I have a feeling things might change or maybe not. We'll see. Uh, Tasha, how about you? I am the film and TV editor at TheVerge.com. I'm not doing as much writing there as I uh, would like to. I was all geared up to write a review of Once Upon a Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And then I ended up in the hospital, and uh, Keith wrote that one for me. So, I yeah, I thought about writing it like Citizen Kane style, where like I th- where I try to put like what I thought you'd write, you know, and and then putting your byline on it. But I, I ultimately opted against it. Uh, that's too bad. I that would have been a fascinating exercise. <laughs> I would have loved to have seen what uh, what I said you about could, the movie. It's impossible to know what Tasha's going to think about something. <laughs> <laughs> that's why we that's why we, boy we have me on this podcast so uh you can card. find out what the heck's She's going the on in my head here. i wow i'll i'll take that comparison i gotta get home to my kids so we're gonna need to wrap this up okay. you can find me on twitter at tasha robinson uh genevieve kosky is our uh producer you can find her on twitter at genevieve kosky you can find her over at vulture where she's the deputy tv editor you can stay updated on the next picture show by visiting nextpictureshow.net via twitter at nextpicturepod and via facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow you can contribute to our patreon and get bonus content and tv discussions gasp at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow and if you haven't subscribed to the show on apple podcasts already what the heck are you waiting for? It's been years, guys. Like like literally four years <laughs> we've been doing on. this business. Apple podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keeps the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance in producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. <laughs>